Hey, we always like to start our Sunday mornings by saying welcome to any of you that are joining us here in our room for the first time, or if you're joining us online for the first time, welcome. We're so glad you're here to worship us today at Hosanna. I am Pastor Nathan, and this morning we are going to be looking at Revelation chapter 18, which is the fall of Babylon, depicted as the political economic system of government that is present during the end times, during the tribulation period, that last seven years that so much of Revelation has been about so far. You know, in the previous chapter, Revelation 17, we looked at Babylon, but depicted as the religious system that is on or present in the world system at that time, that spiritual religious system that unifies all of the various religions of the world together under one banner. And it's what we call or refer to as the one world religion that will be present during that time. And instead of being one new faith, it really is a melting pot of all of the world's religions, all except Jesus, except Christianity. And really what we saw in chapter 17 was how that system will ultimately be destroyed by the Antichrist and the system that he leads. Well, here in Revelation 18, John now turns to another Babylon. And it might be easy to think, if you're reading through these chapters, that since we're still talking about Babylon in chapter 18, that we're still talking about the same thing as we saw in chapter 17, but that isn't accurate. Chapter 18 is really focusing on what we call the political and or economic Babylon, which is not the one world religion, it's the one world government system, the one world economic system in place during this time. And this whole chapter is really focused on the economic power and effect that, it, that falls with the fall of this particular Babylon. And you know, we, we understand that, that so much of what government does, what the governments around the world um, do has to do with economics. There is so much that what they, what they do, how they control, um, what they control, it all has to do with economics because economics affects everything. Really, from a governmental perspective, control over an economy really equals control over the people. And throughout history, and including our societies today, economics has been uh, something that has divided up societies. Societies are divided up by economic class. Here in our country, we have the poor. We have what we call the middle class. We have what we call the upper class. People are constantly at odds over what to do, how to legislate the flow of and distribute wealth. Right On one side of the fence, you have those that are like, hey, if you go out and you build a business and you invest and you take the risk, you're, you're due the, the reward, the profits of your efforts. And then on another side of the aisle, that's like, hey, I shouldn't have to lift a finger, but you should give me all your money because that's just what's fair. We have an administration now refusing to acknowledge the recessions that it has caused by its policies. And instead of fixing the policies, what they want to do is redefine the word recession call it something else because they know how a broken economy can affect their re-election hopes. And as we enter into an election season here in the United States, polls are suggesting over and over again that the number one issue on people's minds is the economy because it is tough right now. Everything is more expensive than it has been before, and so people are thinking, will a change in politics affect my personal economy? Will a change in politics um, make it to where young people could ever afford a home again? <laughs> Will a change in politics bring gas prices back down to reasonable levels? These are questions that are on people's minds, and current economic issues, they affect everybody. They affect businesses, they affect individuals, they affect organizations, including churches. You know, this last year, it has been a really difficult year for our church financially. Some of you remember our Tower started to fall apart, and we had to fix that. Surprise! And we all have things like that in our life where there's emergencies that come up that tap the resources we weren't expecting to have to spend. But with us this year, as God does and as He always does, um, He's provided in just miraculous ways so that us as a church, as an organization, can continue to do what we're called to do. And He does the same thing in the lives of His children that God provides as we trust Him and obey him. 
But when we're affected by politics and affected by economics, it can elicit an emotional response from people. We can find ourselves fearing, having worry, anxiety, stress, and the worse these stresses can get, what is seen historically, the more pliable the populations become. The more pliable they become, and in the end times, the world will have a unified global government, a unified global economy, an economic system never seen before on earth. And although this global, global government will seem to solve issues and provide stability, provide safety on the surface, what we're going to see today in Revelation 18, that this one world government system, this one world political and economic system is really all about a lust for luxury, a lust for materialism, a lust for personal comfort and pleasure at the expense of everybody else. It really is a picture of capitalism gone berserk. As the people of the earth feed the need to indulge themselves at the expense of others around them. But what Revelation 18 ultimately shows us is that it will fall. It will collapse. It will be judged. And that judgment will be complete, will be thorough, and will be final. That's what we're looking at today. But first, we're going to spend some time in worship because, you know, when it comes to economics, when it comes to our personal finances and situations, God is still God whether it's a recession or not. Amen? God is in control. Our job is to learn his will, to, to endeavor through study of his word, to, to be obedient to him with everything. Now, when economics and the economy does get tough, one of the direct things that gets affected is our ability to be obedient to God with our own finances and our own giving and generosity, and, and the devil attacks that, and he's attacking that all over the world. But whether it's good times or bad times, we're called to be obedient to God because he is God. He knows our situation, he knows your situation, and he is worth trusting because he is the one that takes care of us, amen? Let's praise him for that. Father, Lord, we trust you, God, so much for who you are. We trust you, God, in, in every situation of our lives, Lord. And God, even in our world today, we see that, that, that governments around the world are, are struggling with, with economic issues, God. And Lord, we, we see here in Revelation 18 today, Lord, that the situation is just going to get worse. God, that as we've seen situations over history where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, God, Revelation 18 paints a very bleak picture of the end times where that is, is just in, 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 in full expression. And yet, God, it's something that is driven by the selfish greed of man, the selfish indulgence of, of, of self-seeking pleasure, and Lord, that really is such a um, controlling factor in the sinful nature of humanity, and God, we see that you're going to judge it. Lord, just as you judged in Revelation 17 false religion and, and false idolatry, and Lord, all that would raise up something else other than you to worship God, we also see, Lord, that you're going to judge the raising up of self, the raising up of our own pleasure. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna judge Judge that, Lord, because we have raised it up as an idol. But Lord, we want to worship you. We want to praise you. God, we don't want to necessarily focus on the bad, even as we're studying what's to come. We want to be in a place where we trust you with our lives. We trust you with our finances. We trust you with our jobs. We trust you with our families. Because you are God Almighty. And Lord, over and over again in your word, you promise to take care of your people. And so God, we trust you. Even when we don't understand, God, we trust you. Lord, like the apostle said in the Gospels, God, if we're struggling with faith today and trusting you in these things, Lord, we say, God, increase our faith. That we would just be in that place of peace no matter what is going on around us. And Lord, may we be people that pray for those who don't yet know you, who are struggling these, through all these things without the hope of Jesus Christ, Lord. God, we know a time is coming where you're going to take the church out of the world and you're going to start to pour out your final wrath upon the earth. God, we ask, Lord, that before that happens, we would have opportunity to lead those who don't yet know you to you, that they would be spared from the wrath to come. So God, we praise you for our salvation. We praise you for our relationship with you. We praise you that you are God Almighty and we love you so very much. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to jump into our study this morning. As I mentioned earlier, we are in Revelation chapter 18. And if you've been with us for a while, you might remember back in chapter 6 of Revelation, we saw that when the Antichrist came upon the scene, and we saw that in the first seal as we saw this rider on a white horse, a counterfeit to Jesus, came on the scene. The picture was is that he's going to come onto the scene at the, at the start of the seven-year tribulation period, and initially he's going to be very peaceful. He's going to be a man of the people. He's going to have all the answers and solutions to the problems that are going on in the world, and everyone will like him because he seems to solve every problem that the world is facing. Part of his solutions at that time we have been studying will involve incorporating world religions together under one banner. We've seen in prophecies of Daniel how this this one world leader that we refer to as the Antichrist will will sign a peace treaty with Israel that will allow Israel to to reoccupy the Temple Mount to build their temple again, which we've seen as the third temple. And I believe that he's going to figure out a way to allow that to happen without having any effect on the Muslim presence there in the Dome of the Rock that sits on top of that Temple Mount. And the world's going to be amazed at this man, how he got the, the Jews and the Muslims to, to cooperate. And it's going to happen. And so people are just going to be amazed at, at his religious solutions, but part of his answers to the world is also going to be some type of economic plan that solves the world's economic challenges. His rise to the top in the world leadership, his takeover, if you will, is not going to be something forceful or militaristic. It's going to be peaceful. It's going to be very political. It's going to be welcomed, and it's going to be celebrated by the world at large. But when all of it falls, when all of it collapses, what we're going to read about today is that the leaders of the world the merchants of the world, as it describes here in Revelation 18, and the distributors of the goods of the world are going to be in chaos. They're going to be in sorrow. They're going to be in fear. And this is really what chapter 18 of Revelation is all about. Now, I mentioned in our intro that there are many similarities uh, between the descriptions of Babylon in 17 and 18. And sometimes it could be hard to distinguish what, what is John talking about. Um, what, what, you know, in Revelation 17, he's talking about Babylon as this expression of a religious system. 18, it's different. Now, again, though, as I mentioned, some people can read it and think that he's talking about the same exact thing because there are similarities between the descriptions. When you have Babylon, the religious system, and then Babylon, the political, commercial, economic system, we see that both in chapter 17 and 18 are referred to or depicted as a woman, referred to as, as a female. And so with the culture of our world today, you could say that Babylon's pronouns are she, her, okay? Now, um, they're also referred to as both having made the nations drunk with the wine of their sexual immorality. They're both described as, as having the kings of the earth commit sexual immorality with her. They're both described as being burned up with fire in God's judgment. And they're both described as dressed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. But you got to remember, as I've mentioned in previous messages, Babylon as a concept, Babylon as an idea, um, Babylon as a descriptor is used to describe a number of different things biblically. Babylon is used to refer to a literal city. There was a literal city called Babylon that existed one day um, or back in the past. It is a city that is currently being rebuilt today. Babylon is also used as the, to refer to a literal empire that the city was capital of. You had the Babylonian Empire, which existed in history. And, and really, when you tie those two together, we, we've seen uh, over and over that, that cities can represent entire nations and governments and empires, right? Like when you think of Rome, it'll make you think of the Roman Empire. When you think of Germany as a nation, you think of the whole ideology connected to that. And so there's cities that represent nations and so on and so forth. But Babylon is also used to reference the ideology of pagan idolatry pagan worship, false worship, and sin, which, which these, these anything but God religious concepts do have their roots all the way back in the Tower of Babel, which was where Babylon came from. 
And we understand this concept of ideologies representing cities, right? If I told you what city is Sin City? Vegas, right? That's not a difficult one, right? Or uh, San Francisco, once known for technology, now known as a case study in liberal policies. Um, But ultimately, this concept of Babylon is a concept, a word that is used to refer to anything that stood or stands against God or, or presents itself as instead of God Almighty. So when something is a Babylon, it, whether it's a city, an empire, a government, an ideology, it's referring to something that is elevating man, elevating man's desires, man's values, man's goals above God and God's will and God, what God wants for mankind. And so where chapter 17 presented Babylon the Great as the mother of prostitutes and the detestable things of the earth, a religious system that was supported by and influencing the people of the world, a system that initially even had influence over the beast, it was presented as something separate from the beast, separate from the beast that represents the one world government, again, as a religious system guilty of religious abominations and a system that was ultimately destroyed by the political power that previously supported her. Chapter 18, we see Babylon the Great, the same descriptor, symbolized as a great city, a center of of economic control, a capital that represents a kingdom, that represents a system of economic indulgence and excess. And so in chapter 18, collectively, um, Babylon the Great is seen not as a religious system, but it is seen as a political socioeconomic entity guilty of greed and self-indulgence as opposed to the guilt of religious abomination. And this Babylon the Great we see in chapter 18 of Revelation is ultimately destroyed by a sudden act of God, where Babylon the Great in chapter 17 was destroyed by the governments of the world. Following me? Good, okay. I say that phrase a lot because this stuff gets really confusing sometimes. So, Religious Babylon and political economic Babylon are two distinct things, but they are intertwined. There's similarities between the both, but they are distinct. And so religious Babylon, we saw, is judged at the midpoint of tribulation. That's at the midpoint of uh, of the seven years where the Antichrist is seemingly killed. And then there's this miraculous resurrection, and he comes back on the scene enters into the temple, the Jewish temple, demands to be worshipped as God. We saw that in chapter 17, but political economic Babylon is judged at the very end of tribulation, and that's what we're looking at today. So, with that being said, read with me in Revelation chapter 18, verse 1, where we see the proclamation of judgment against political economic Babylon. It says, After this, I saw another angel with great authority coming down from heaven, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. He called out in a mighty voice, It has fallen. Babylon the Great has fallen. She has become a home for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, and a haunt for every unclean and despicable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. The kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown wealthy from her sensuality and excess. So it opens here with another angel, and, and that phrase another is, is just like the one in 17 that brought the message, brought the vision to John. And this angel is, is, is seemingly fresh from God's presence, right? This angel comes down from heaven, and, and the earth is illuminated with its splendor, right? We see that back when uh, Moses, you know, hey God, can I see you? And God's like, it'll burn you up, bro. So hide in the rock, I'll walk by you, you'll see the afterglow. And Moses was like, ah, shining in glory, right? So we can imagine being face-to-face with God in his presence. And so this angel is just, the, the glory of God just illuminating the earth. And this angel declares, it has fallen. Babylon the Great has fallen. This proclamation is, is coming just as we have already seen the judgment fall upon the the satanic system of false worship and idolatry in chapter 17. Now it's declaring that God is judging the great satanic system of greed and indulgence and selfish evil that has corrupted um, really all of earth's 
history. The words here used in these first three verses are what indicate that Babylon, the Babylon here that he's referring to is Babylon as expressed by this political, uh, governmental, and economic center because it says she has become a home to demons. That word home in the, in the original Greek refers specifically to a geographical location that you live at or a location where you feel comfortable at, and that's why it's translated home. So it's a very specific word that's referring to a specific place, which is why some go, hey, we're connecting this to an actual literal city of Babylon that is capital of this one world government. And then he also uses the word haunt. She has become a haunt for every unclean spirit, every unclean bird, every unclean and despicable beast. That word haunt is very interesting considering we just put up a haunt for Halloween as an outreach. Um, The word haunt here in in the Greek means prison. It means a prison or a place where, um, a place that is guarded, like like prisons or guards would would guard prisoners at a prison. And so this, this place, it's referring to a physical place where demons and unclean spirits have come to live, and it's almost like, yeah, God has let them flock to this one place that represents so much because he's about to judge the whole thing. Additionally, five times in chapter 18, Babylon is referred to as a great city. Once, it's referred to as the mighty city. Later on in the chapter, we're going to see that the city, we're told, is destroyed in one day. And the leaders of the earth will, quote, stand far off and see the smoke of her burning. And so that idea of standing far off, it's again, it's a geographical word of relation. So they're, they're, they're actually standing afar off looking at something burning. And then we're going to read that the merchants are upset that their cargo will go unsold due to Babylon's destruction. And so again, people go, if Babylon is actually a city that is rebuilt in the Middle East, um, they have access to the seaports there, and that could be a, a, a prominent place of commerce and whatnot. And so, again, we see that Babylon um, in chapter 18 is, is simultaneously representing um, an actual city, which, which is going to be the government or the headquarters for the government and the economy of the planet. And that city then also, it's Babylon is representing the, the philosophy that that city and that government stands for globally. So what is the inspiration for what this Babylon stands for philosophically? Well, it told us already. Demons feel at home there. They're comfortable there. How we feel when we go home, right? Ah, oh, there's no place like home, right? There's, there's no place like my own bed. There's no place like my own kitchen, right? Demons feel that way about Babylon, this Babylon, this place. It says it's a hangout or a haunt for every unclean thing. And then the word that is used there is like a prison where they're gathered for judgment. Now, we've already read that during the tribulation time, demons are going to be rampant all over the earth. There's going to be demons in mass upon the earth. They, they said that they, they came up out of the pit. The really bad demons that were in prison in the abyss are let out during the tribulation period to wreak havoc upon the earth. We read about... Um, these armies of demons, possibly armies of demons, and 200 million, some interpret that as. We've read about the four demons that were incarcerated by the Euphrates River, which is right by Babylon, released to then go lead these armies and kill a third of humanity. We've read about demons from the sky and, and, and all of that. But it says they feel at home in Babylon. Why? Because Babylon is a place that epitomizes a value system opposed to God and everything he stands for. So then you go, well, what is it this Babylon stands for? Well, that idea is introduced in verse 3 where it says the merchants have grown wealthy by her sensuality and excess. You see, the sin of Babylon the Great in chapter 18 is not only idolatry and false worship, And that is referenced by saying that she's committed sexual immorality and the leaders and the kings of the earth have committed that with her. But it's power, it's greed as seen in verse 3, and it's pride as we're going to see in verse 7. Because you notice in verse 3 when it says there that the, the, um, the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have grown wealthy from her sensuality in excess, that word sensuality 
doesn't mean what you think it means, right? You, you think of maybe sexual perversion or something like that. But in the Greek, the word sensuality simply refers to powerful influence. That's the word in the Greek there. It's the power to affect or to influence based on prestige. And that's the concept of political power. The influence that politics can bring you when you're the head of governments. But it was there. They had grown wealthy from her sensuality and her excess. And that word excess means luxurious living. It's the idea of living in a way that gratifies the senses. Right? Some people like to buy the expensive art because it makes them feel a certain way. They like to have the expensive house or the fancy car because it makes them feel a sense of way. It gratifies their, 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 their selves, and that's referring to the political power. So Babylon the Great here in, in chapter 18 has caused the merchants of the world to grow wealthy based upon her political power and her economic power. And so this Babylon in chapter 18 of Revelation is symbolically representing this system of economic greed, of political power, and pride. But if you put those together, that is a, um, uh, expressed in another biblical world called worldliness. Worldliness. When you hear that word worldliness in the Bible, it's talking about these, these materialistic pursuits. It's talking about this greed and this, this corrupt control and power that people exercise. Um, and, and this whole thing is, is talking about this system possibly likely represented by an actual rebuilt city of Babylon, which we've talked about in the past, which is a headquarters of this worldwide government and economic system led by the Antichrist, which then is itself characterized by greed, power, and pride due to its location and its economy. Now, if Babylon is indeed rebuilt in the middle and becomes a capital of a worldwide government, well, it's built there right in the Middle East, which is becoming... Uh, more and more an economic power center in the world. And it shouldn't be hard for us to imagine that, uh, imagine that happening because the Middle East has become more and more wealthy um, over the decades by selling what to the world? Oil. And they're just, they're just insanely wealthy. Think of places like Abu Dhabi, right? This glorious, technologically advanced city in the middle of the desert, and it's just amazing. But the place is so full of luxury and wealth that, that you, you might see videos on YouTube or whatever where, that, where people have these like, you know, $200,000, $400,000 supercars, and they just abandon them on the side of the street, you know, and I'm like, I'll go get one. <laughs> just let me bring it home, you know. But, you know, Lamborghinis and stuff, and they're just like, just people park them and abandon them, walk away, because there's so much wealth and luxury there that, that these expensive cars are just considered something to be cast off. Um, the Middle East, you know, is, there's so much wealth there. The Saudi Arabian soccer club, Al, Al Nasir, recently paid Cristiano Ronaldo over $200 million to come play for their soccer team. 200 million, can, can you please come and kick a ball around on a field for us? Now, granted, he does it really well. But 200 million dollars? Some say it's the single highest soccer salary in history. And there's so many other examples of just the wealth over in the Middle East. You know, when it comes to oil, um, yeah, we could get it. I mean, oil is absolutely necessary for so much. The whole world runs on oil, right? Imagine how the Middle East could use oil to make the nations of the world turn against Israel. And the prophets have told us over and over that all the nations of the earth will indeed turn against Israel. I mean, it's not a difficult scenario to imagine that those that control the oil say, hey, any friend of Israel is no friend of ours. And if you support Israel, you can't have any of our oil. And if a scenario like that presented itself, it's not hard to imagine then the kings of the east quickly moving to invade Israel with all their military might because what? An oil crisis. It could happen. I don't know exactly if that's how it's going to happen, but it's a possible scenario. And so in verse 4, we get to a call by God of those who reject Babylon to, to believe and to trust and to live in obedience to Jesus during the tribulation time. Verse 4, it says, Then I heard another voice from heaven. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins or receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. 
And then verse 6, it's speaking to God. It says, pay her back the way she also paid and double it according to her works. In the cup which she mixed, mix a double portion for her. As much as she glorified herself and indulged her sensual and excessive ways, give her that much torment and grief. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen. I am not a widow and I will never see grief. For this reason, her plagues will come in just one day, death and grief and famine. She will be burned up with fire because the Lord God who judges her is mighty. Now, it might be hard to imagine that those who are genuinely saved believers during tribulation time, it, it, it might be hard imagining them becoming actively um, becoming active participants in religious Babylon, right? Because religious Babylon is going to be very pagan and, and very, you know, and you might think, gosh, I, I really can't imagine Christians during the tribulation time, those who believe. Um, but when you think about political economic Babylon, that's a different story altogether. The lure of materialism is strong. The need specifically during the tribulation period to be able to buy and sell after the midpoint Right? We've been told that in the midpoint after the Antichrist comes back and takes over sole global dominance that he's going to introduce the mark of the beast. And nobody will be able to buy or sell without it. Well, you can imagine being saved during that time and you need to put food on the table for your kids. You need to put gas in your car. You, you, you need to buy and sell. Or the idea of blending in just to, to bring an ease to living. Right? It's, just, it's too difficult to stand against the beast. But that's not a temptation that only exists in the end times. It's a temptation that exists today. There are many who are genuinely saved, genuinely saved, that flirt with the world far too much. John actually spoke of this in one of his previous letters in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. He said, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of or the love for the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions, it's not from the Father, but it is of the world, or from the world. And the world with its lusts is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Guess what John described right there in 1 John chapter 2? The character of political economic Babylon. He described, described its, its, its ideas, its philosophy, its motivators. You know, God's call to the, his people on earth during the tribulation time, because we know during tribulation time, there's going to be 144,000 witnesses. There's going to be the two witnesses in, in Jerusalem. There's going to be the gospel still being preached, and people are going to get saved during the tribulation time, both Jew and Gentile. But God's call to them is come out of Babylon. Come out of her. See, there's seven occasions throughout the Bible where God calls his people to come out of Babylon before he judges it. Um, and, and really, it's a picture that in every age of human history, God calls his people out of godless systems. Whether they be religious or political or economic, he, say, he, say, he says, don't participate. Don't be a part of that system. You might have to live there, but, but, don't, but don't blend into that system. Don't take on that system's values and characteristics. And he always calls his people to come out of any group, any system that is opposed to, to his plan, his will, his love, his plan of salvation for mankind. He says, come out of that. Don't, don't participate in that. You know, you might think back to Abraham. At the time, his name was Abram, and God said, hey, dude, take your family, get out of your country, and come to a land that I'm going to show you. And we're blessed that he obeyed. When Israel was called out of Egypt, God said to them, get out of Egypt and never go back. I'm delivering you from bondage. And obviously Egypt was, was a world power at that time, both literally and symbolically. And during tribulation, as I said, there will be many both Jew and Gentile, who will come to genuine salvation of Jesus Christ during the tribulation period and possibly the greatest spiritual revival ever. We don't know for sure. 
that the Bible talks about multitudes beyond counting that are going to be saved. And many of those saved during this time, we've already seen in Revelation, will be martyred for their faith, will be slaughtered, violently killed simply because they believe in Jesus, but not all of them. Some will survive through the seven years of tribulation all the way up to the end. And especially during the last three and a half years when the Antichrist has sole control, sole dominance, he's already obliterated the one world religious system that says, oh, all the religions are fine. He goes, no, 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 I'm God, worship me, and if you don't, I'll kill you. By the way, you must take this mark or you can't buy and sell. During this time, there are going to be many who are genuine believers, tempted to involve themselves in the, in the godless, materialistic, even hedonistic system of the end times. And it's going to be things like, well, after all, I, I, I have to eat. I, 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 I have to live. I have to be able to buy and sell. I, I have to, you know, I have to do this. In, in, because if I don't get involved, I'll just be stranded in this godless world system. Maybe there'll be pressure by unsaved friends and family. Will you stop causing problems at work and just, just steal like they're asking you to? Well, that's not just end times. That's today, isn't it? Will you just fudge the report? I can't do that. You're going to lose the promotion. And even today, Christians are pressured and called to do things as a godless world system does things. And in those moments, we have an opportunity to say, I'm going to obey God or I'm going to obey the world. And God says to these people during this time, look, come out of it. And he gives them two very significant reasons there. He goes, so that you will not share in her sins or receive any of her plagues. That word plagues there is referring to any event that results in great loss. So don't share in her sins. Don't, don't, don't receive any of her plagues, right? She's going to be judged, when, when, when a Christian somehow justifies disobedience to God for the sake of not losing, right? I need money. I need things. I need, God's like, you're going to lose it all because that whole system is going down. Trust me. Don't trust in your own ways and your own thoughts. That's, that's the idea here. And he says, because her sins are piled up to heaven. Now, what are the sins that God is calling his own out of? Well, this phrase piled up to heaven, it should bring us back to the whole concept of the Tower of Babel, right? Way back when you had Nimrod the hunter, it was really the first group that said, hey, we know what God wants us to do, but now nah, we're going to depend on ourselves. We're going to supply ourselves. We're going we're to provide for ourselves. We don't need God. And there was two parts of that. It said they built a city, which was a political economic center, and then they built the Tower of Babel, which was a sign of religion. And they were like, we're going to build our own religion, and we're going to connect to the divine on our own terms. But it wasn't just religious. It was also political and economic. And so there's an idolatry there that in both cases, it was man raising up himself as God. We don't need God. We are God. And their tower didn't reach to heaven, ultimately, God confused the languages of the people, but the sins of their ideology, ideology do reach all the way to heaven. And this is where we see the pride. We've seen greed. We've seen uh, uh, um, lust for power, right? The sensuality and the excess. But now here in verse 7, we see her pride because it says, it tells us that she glorified herself and says, I sit as a queen. I am the ruler of all things. And in that same verse, it says she indulged in her sensual and excessive ways. And again, those are the same two words we looked at, right? It's this indulgence in the exercise of power and control and luxurious living, pampering, self-pleasure. But it's interesting, the word excessive there is a little bit of a different twist on the word excess that we looked at in verse 3. This word excessive means living, living extravagantly without regard to those in need around you. So it's not just buying the fancy car and buying the fancy house and have all things because, wow, I feel great because of things, but it's doing those things specifically when you know there's people in need and you go, 
I'm not going to help you out because I need another private jet. Verse 7, she goes on to say, I'm not a widow, and I will never see grief. The idea here in the language is, is that not only does she have pride, but there's this avoidance of, of suffering and loss in connection with this helping others, right? I don't want to lose what, what I want to get because I spent to help someone in need. That's the idea here when she says, I'm not a widow, I will never see grief. And so we see all three of these things, pride, indulgence, the avoidance of loss of self, these are all characteristics of materialism. These are all characteristics of worldliness, and this is what we see um, um, displayed here. And so this political economic system of the end times will ignore the needs of the less fortunate and simply indulge in selfish, luxurious greed. And God is saying to his people this time, come out of that. Come out of that. Yes, the lure of what the world has to offer is strong. Especially when what the world has to offer directly affects our well-being and our living. Yeah, it's hard to be a pilgrim, as it calls Christians, following the cross in the midst of making decisions about, well, I might not be able to buy this, or I might not be able to have that, or I might not be able to do that if I give, if I help those in need. And, and those are hard lures. And yeah, it's, it, it affects Christians today. You know, sometimes Christians can find themselves going to church week after week, and, and we gather for Bible study and worship, and, and, but it becomes just a part of the routine. And maybe we're not necessarily listening from the heart anymore. Maybe we find ourselves not really engaging in the work that this church is, that any church is. We find ourselves, because life is tough, we're, we're not giving anymore because, well, after all, I've got to live. We find ourselves not serving anymore because, well, you know, whatever the reason is, I can't get involved in church. I'm too busy. I'm too this. I'm too that. And what happens is in those moments, our hearts grow just a little bit colder, just a little bit harder, a little bit more selfish, and we can find ourselves, I believe, genuinely saved, but just a little bit less in love with God and a little bit more in love with the world. And what did John say? Don't love the world or the things of the world. Don't fall in love with that. Love God. Here in Revelation 18, God is saying to his people, come out of that. You see, biblically, God doesn't just want some of us. And I don't mean some of us like, oh, these five and that. No, no, no. Us individually, he just doesn't want a portion of our life and our heart. He wants all of us. God wants all of us. He wants all of our time. He wants all of our resources because, after all, it's his anyways. He wants all of our heart. He wants all of our adoration, all of our commitment, all of our devotion. It's about a full surrender to God. That's why he says don't, don't love the world even a little bit. And here, as God is about to give Babylon all that it is due, he is pleading with those that are, his, that are his, get out. Just like he did with Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. Bro, you've been living in the world. I know you're mine, but you've been compromising. Get out, because I'm about to smash it all to the ground. And yes, this whole ideology of Babylon the Great in regards to its political and economic ideology, it's all going to be judged one day. Now, it says here it's literally judged in one day. It could be one literal day, right? The word there is that word that can refer to 24 hours. It could refer to a time period, right? So it could be one literal day where the literal city of Babylon, right, the center of political power, the center of the world's economy is all destroyed in some way. Again, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? You say, God can't do that. I don't want God throwing rocks at me. That's what he did to Sodom and Gomorrah. Boom, boom, and the whole place was gone in one literal day. Crazy. And so again, it's a picture of him destroying the system, symbolically destroying Babylon, the system. And so verse 9, we get to the lament of the kings of the earth. The kings of the earth who have committed sexual immorality and shared her sensual and excessive ways will weep and mourn over her when they see the smoke from her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the mighty city, for in a single hour your judgment has come. 
I mentioned earlier that that phrase, standing afar off, in the, in the Greek, it, it indicates a physical observation. It, it's a word that indicates like, like geographical relation. And so, again, this could be them looking at the actual city of Babylon being destroyed. And it says, so great is the heat. It says she's burned with fire. So the heat is so great, and the smoke from her burning is so great that they're standing afar off just lamenting the destruction of Babylon. The mention of burning with fire and the smoke from her burning, some commentators look at this and they believe that the literal city of Babylon that is going to be rebuilt in the end times will be destroyed um, by nuclear weapons as terrorists or somebody, whoever, bombs the place and God allowing that to happen as a part of his judgment. But they're lamenting here. What are they lamenting? The, the, the source, the center of their own political power and authority, the source and center of their economic power and influence and control, and they're lamenting because it was gone so fast. All of their hopes and dreams were in that, and it's gone like that. Verse 11, now we get the lament of the merchants, the business owners, the ones who got rich selling the goods of the world. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargo any longer. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet, all kinds of fragrant wood products, objects of ivory, objects of expensive wood, brass, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine flour, grain, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and slaves, human lives. The fruit you craved has left you. All your splendor and glamorous things are gone. They will never find them again. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, jewels and pearls, for in a single hour such fabulous wealth was destroyed. So why are the merchants lamenting? No one buys their cargo anymore. There's the whole system that, that allowed them to sell and profit, it's destroyed. And, and, and there's no profit anymore. And then we have this long list of stuff, right? It's interesting. You have gold, silver, and jewels. That, that represents jewelry and you know, items of luxury in that sense. Linen, purple, silk, and scarlet. That's specifically those colors referring to expensive clothing, right? The name brand stuff, the, the $20,000 handbag, fragrant wood products, objects of ivory, all of that. It's, that's referring to furnishings and furniture and building materials, right? You ever watch those shows where they, they look at luxurious homes and, and, you know, sometimes it's all about the, oh, yeah, we made this out of this fine marble and, you know, and all the materials used in the building of, of luxurious places to live. Cinnamon and spice and all that, that's referring to fragrances and perfumes and other items of luxury. Wine and olive oil and those things, it's expensive food and expensive drink. Horses and carriages, that's a reference to transportation, and that's all the cars and the private jets and all of the stuff that the rich have. All of that, it's fallen, it's gone. All that kept the world going, all that, that, that mankind pursued as a means of purpose and identity, gone. But you notice the end of that list there, slaves. It says human lives. You know, we have a pandemic today that some of you are familiar with. People say slavery is abolished, and yet thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of children are kidnapped and sold into sex slavery every day in this world. You have adults that are forced into it through one way or another, and you have the industries, the pornography industry and all its associated industries that are billion and billions of dollars of industry. And you have all of this Slavery taking place. And seemingly as it gets brought up, it's like, is anybody doing anything about it? Are the governments doing anything about it? You know, and you have the people like Epstein who, who get caught, who allegedly knows names and mysteriously kills himself in jail before he can name names. I'm not big on conspiracy theories, but some of this stuff is just too spot on. Um, it's just going to get worse. It's going to get worse. 
And I believe during the end times, it's going to be probably very open and condoned. That's just my opinion. But all that mankind has pursued in its efforts to gratify its own sick pleasures and its own wants and desires, all of it's going to be taken away. It's going to be judged by God. And those who ultimately live for all of that will be tormented in the eternal absence of those things. And that's really a picture of hell. A picture of hell, the ultimate separation from God is going to be an ultimate place of permanently unfulfilled desire. There's no satisfaction. There's no sense of peace. There's none of that's in hell. It's torment forever. Verse 17, the lament of the distributors. These are those who got rich off of delivering the goods. Every shipmaster, seafarer, the sailors, and all who do business by sea stood far off as they watched the smoke from her burning and kept crying out, Who is like the great city? They threw dust on their heads and kept crying out, weeping and mourning, Woe, woe, the great city, where all those who have ships on the sea became rich from her wealth, for in a single hour she was destroyed. Again, it's interesting thinking of the Middle East and a possibly rebuilt Babylon being the center of the world's economy. We've talked about it already, right? The great commodity of the Middle East is oil. And what's really interesting is you can't deliver oil in an airplane. It can only be delivered by ship. It can only be delivered across the oceans. And so this could be a reference to that source of wealth and power and influence control being, being destroyed. We remember back during... Um, the wars uh, in, in the 90s and the oil fields burning, right? And just burning for 24 hours. And who knows what would happen if, if nuclear fire was detonated in a place like that. Um, all conjecture, but still it could be referring to those things. But these groups are lamenting. You have the leaders, the kings of the earth. You have the merchants. You have the distri distributors of the goods. It, it, that's a collective picture of the political, economic force, power, control, the system altogether. But well, you'll notice all three of them, none of them are crying about their sin. None of them are crying about the, the, their soul. What are they crying over? Their bank accounts. They're crying over their profits. They're not crying over the fact that they were, they were so full of greed and indulgence that they destroyed lives. And No, it's not that at all. It's their money. It's all over. It's all gone. Their customers are gone. Their products are gone. Their investments are gone. Their backroom deals are gone. Their secret investments are gone that, that get them rich at the expense of everybody else. It's all gone, and it's gone so quickly. It's gone so fast. And this just makes me think of, of what if the world gets to a completely digitized currency system, right? We get rid of goods and cash all together, and it's all Bitcoin or something like that, right? Every bit of money is, is all digital, and then God does something where the entire global network is wiped out in one moment. I mean, I don't know. It could happen. And then verse 20, rejoice over her, heaven, and you saints, apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced on her the judgment that she passed on you. Then a mighty angel picked up a stone like a large millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, in this way, Babylon, the great city, will be thrown down violently and never be found again. The sound of harpists and musicians and flutists and trumpets, trumpeteers will never be heard in you again. No craftsman of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a mill will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. And the voice of a groom and a bride will never be heard in you again. All this will happen because your merchants were the nobility of the earth, because the nations were deceived by your sorcery. In her was found the blood of prophets and saints, and all of those slaughtered on the earth. So we get to verse 20, and then there's a celebration. There's rejoicing in heaven. Heaven, heaven is, is called to celebrate, and, you know, and, and they're called to do this while the world is lamenting the loss of its prophets and the loss of its power and the loss of its control. Heaven is rejoicing, and you might think, well, that's, gosh, that's kind of harsh, right? I mean, with all the loss and the destruction and the devastation and all the sadness on the earth, it's almost like, you know what, the Christians are laughing at them? <laughs> no, that's not what's happening. The rejoicing it's talking about here is a rejoicing that I think you get if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ. I think you would understand what's going on here. You see, after all, the, the gospel and, and Jesus Christ it has been humiliated for so long. 
has been stood against for so long. The, the God's children have been persecuted on this earth for so long simply for believing in Jesus and dare saying there is hope in Christ. And these, these people, those of us that are called the church today and then the tribulation saints during this time, they've endured this persecution Righteousness and purity, it, 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 justice, it's had enough abuse, and now it's over. And that's what heaven is rejoicing over. Wickedness is done. Selfish wickedness, evil, it's done, it's over. Jesus is about to descend for his second coming. Heaven is exultant over the fact that Babylon is over. Now it's interesting, in verse 21 he mentions a millstone, right? This mighty angel picked up a large millstone. And there's two places in Scripture where, where it, it, there, there's this idea of a large stone or a millstone. Um, one of them is reminiscent of Jeremiah's instructions to Sariah um, in Jeremiah. And then there's also something Jesus said. But in Jeremiah, he, he told Sariah to build or bind a stone of the text of his t- uh, prophecy against Babylon. So he prophesied against Babylon of the time. He said, look, write it all on a stone and then throw that stone into the Euphrates River, right? And we read in Jeremiah 51, 64, it says, then say in the same way, Babylon will sink and never rise again because of the disaster I am bringing on her. They will grow weary. The words of Jeremiah end here. Dun, 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 Right? And then in Luke 17, too, this is what Jesus said. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. I think there's a broad reference there. Um, I do think there's a, a reference there to those who would traffic kids and whatnot. But in a, in a broader sense, you know, Babylon as an idea, a system, has caused the whole world to stumble for generations. It has enticed and tempted and deceived and lured and seduced the world. It has taken captive both the bodies and souls of men and women and children, and this is God's judgment against all of it. It says, all this will happen because your merchants were the nobility of the earth. That's an interesting thing. This is why this judgment came, because your merchants were the nobility of the earth. That word nobility simply means Um, to be an important or an influential person. It doesn't necessarily mean you're part of some royal family. It just means you're important or influential. But instead of using that that importance and that influence for for godly things, they used it for selfish gain and self-seeking pleasure. And then it says, because the nations were deceived by your sorcery. They weren't doing magic tricks. It's not what it's talking about. That word sorcery is a word we're familiar with in Scripture that refers to um, drugs, Right? It's pharmakia. It's a, a word that's referring to drug use or the preparation of drugs. But, but in a broad sense, that word pharmakia refers to the idea of addiction, being addicted and controlled by something. And so I think the idea here is as he's connecting this to the merchants, the idea is that Babylon, your merchants, those who peddled your goods, used their influence to get the world addicted to materialism and self-gratification and self-pleasure. They used their influence to get the world addicted to these things. And I think that speaks to advertising and marketing, right? Millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars spent every year to get you to buy something you don't need. Millions of dollars spent to do a jingle, you know, like three notes, right? And I need to go to McDonald's now. I don't need McDonald's, but I heard the jingle, and they spent millions coming up with that. And you got all this idea of this advertising and this marketing that gets people to spend all their resources on useless stuff or sinful stuff. And it's all this idea of of the the pandemic in, in our nation today of how enslaved people are to debt. Right? People are in debt up to their eyeballs, and they, and they can't seem to get out of it. And the, and the whole system, in, in many ways, seems rigged to keep you in debt. Your car is kind of rickety. You need a new one. Finance it. Those shoes, they're going to cover your feet just like the ones that pay less, but hey, some basketball celebrity endorsed these ones, go into debt. And on and on and on and on. 
And so we end up being enslaved to debt and spending what we don't have to get things we don't need or things we shouldn't need. And, and in so doing, we end up with nothing to give. Right? The Bible says, don't steal, but work so that you have something to give those in need. But when we've indebted ourselves to the point where we can't give at all, we're enslaved. And in doing so, you restrict your own ability. And you restrict the, the ability of the body you're a part of, right? The whole concept of church is we come together as a body of believers, and we pool our talents, and we pool our time, and we pool our resources together to have a greater effect than any of us could have individually. And as a church, we support missionaries, and we, and we, and we use funds that come in through our giving to, to support organizations that are trying to get kids out of trafficking. And, and so we, we, we individually do things to help those in need, and then we come together as the church. That's a part of this function of this entity. But when the world gets us so addicted to getting things we don't need and we get ourselves so in debt that we can't give anymore, guess what? You can't help those in need and, and then it starts to affect the organizations you're a part of. But the biggest sin of all, and the indicator that Babylon has a philosophy and a mindset and a system is in mind here is this final verse where it says, the blood of the saints and the prophets and all who were slain on the earth, it's on her hands. The blood is on the hands of Babylon. And it's interesting because the blood of the saints and prophets, yeah, religiously there's oppression. We hate Jesus. We hate those who believe in Jesus. Let's, let's kill them, right? That's going to be rampant during the end times. But then it says, all who were slain on the earth. This system that would get people addicted to drugs. You're accountable, Babylon. This system that would get people so in debt that they lose everything and, and end up homeless and, and, and end up dying in situations like that. You're accountable, Babylon. And all the other iterations of what that could be, God takes that seriously. God takes the persecution of his people very seriously, and I believe he takes it as a personal offense. All those who would attack his people, the entire world system that would attack God and everything God is, and everything God wants. Attack that. So you don't need him. Elevate your own desires. The whole system that would attack that will one day be finally, fully, completely dealt with once and for all. So today, this morning, you know, each one of us, we're either a citizen of Babylon or we're a citizen of heaven. You're either taken by the world system or you're a member and belong to, member of and belong to the kingdom of heaven. Your name's either written in the Lamb's book of life or you're on the customer logs of Babylon. Now, I'm not suggesting that you can't be a Christian and be involved in the economy. Right? <laughs> I'm not suggesting that. We, we have to spend money. We got bills to pay. We got rent, right? We go to work. We earn. That's all good. The Bible has a whole lot to say about that. We might be talking about that in the future. But the idea of loving the world system to the degree that you'll turn from God. Loving what the world system has, what it offers, how it does things to the degree that you will then engage in disobedience to God to pursue its ways. That's the idea. That's the point. So does political, economic, Babylon, does it have a hold on you today? Do you love the world and its stuff and its luxuries so much that you compromise obedience to God? There is coming a day when that allegiance to Babylon will be demonstrated very clearly in the taking of the mark of the beast. And Revelation, I believe, is very clear where it says those who take that mark of the beast at that time will be beyond salvation. Because it won't just be a financial or economic decision, the taking of that mark will be a spiritual allegiance. But today, today, if you were mixed up with a divided heart, if you were trying to pretend that you can love God and be fully committed to Him while loving the world at the same time, or if you realize today that your personal love of the world and all that is in it is ultimately empty, and God is speaking to you about the reality of his judgment to come on all of that. Either way, if you need to cry out to God today for forgiveness, 
If you have to repent of a materialism that leads you into disobedience to God, I promise you it isn't too late. He is listening. He is listening right now. He is still waiting for you to cry out to him. And when you do, he will forgive you. He will change your heart. He will fill you with his Holy Spirit. He will wash you clean of all sin and enable you to make the choice to live in obedience to him. And from that point forward, he will then call you, and he calls us today to reject the ways, the values, the philosophies of the world, and instead be people who, while we're working and going about our life to do what we have to do, that we be people who learn of him so that we would know him, so that we will live for him, and that we will then share him with a world that desperately needs him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God. We thank you for all that you are. <clears throat> we thank you for all that you've done. We thank you, God, that you are enough. And Lord, I pray for those in this room that are maybe struggling with that fact. Lord, as we have realities of economic challenges, Lord, we have realities of, of the difficulty of the expense of things. But Lord, that doesn't surprise you. you. You know that. And Lord, your word tells us that if we would just look on the lilies of the field and see how, how magnificently you clothe them, of how much more value are we, your children, than the lilies of the field? And that God, instead of compromising our faith and compromising our obedience and compromising the truth, to protect ourselves from loss, God, we should instead trust you. To be obedient to you, Lord, in all things. To be obedient, Lord, in serving you with our lives. To be obedient to you in, 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 in obeying you in our behaviors and our words and our actions. To, Lord, be obedient to you even in how we deal with our finances and our giving and our support and, and all that you've called us to do, Lord, that we would then be people who help those in need rather than being the people in need because we've enslaved ourselves to that which is empty. Help us to trust you, God. Increase our faith. God, those in this room and watching online that, that, that maybe don't know you, Lord, that have realized, Lord, that they, they really truly do love the world and they've come to believe and even experience that it's empty. Lord, I pray today, as they have heard your message, that you're going to judge all of that. And that there is only salvation in you and nothing else, God. That even in the privacy of their own heart, they would call out to you and say, God, forgive me of my sin. Come into my life. Teach me and lead me. Give me a new heart and help me to trust in you. And that, Lord, as your Holy Spirit fills their life, they would be people who learn of you, live for you, and share who you are with a world that desperately needs you. God, we know you bless us. We know you take care of us. Help us, Lord, to be people who are at peace with all of it. We love you, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's worship, guys.